And this week I thought we would just have a discussion. We haven't had a discussion in a while. And so I would just like you to spend a moment or two to consider well, what, would you, what would you like to talk about? Or what would you like, what question might you have? Or what would you like me to address? If, you know, if we were just sitting here together, just me and you, or me and 200 of you. <laughs> and, and, and really to think, what, what, you know, if, I, if I was to call on you right now and say, okay, what, you, what do you want to talk about or what question do you have, what would you say? And you could think about your own practice and what's, what's happening, what's the edge of your practice or what's the most difficult place of practice or what's the most place that you're most excited about in practice that's always something interesting to talk about. Or it could be something about the Buddhist teaching, uh, the philosophy, the greater picture, the greater context, application in daily life, any, anything really. But something that's important to you, that makes it most interesting, most vital. And please say your name. I have her. I'm having a hard time hearing you. Okay. So come closer okay. and I'll repeat your question. Okay. Thank you. Sure. So I'm working with children and families who are pretty trauma are very traumatized. So traumatized children and families. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I have I've been having sessions with families that are really intense. Um, hmm. and it's causing a lot of reactivity. Right. Right. And um Take your time. So it's, it's intense to work with people who have been traumatized in this way, and you're having a, a reaction to it. Right, and I've been practicing for a long time. Right. But I'm having a really hard time with the reactivity. Um, do, you, do you think you're not supposed to be reactive to this? No. Okay. I, I, well, okay. Well, no, I really, I really wonder if it, either consciously or unconsciously, I've been practicing a long time, is there some implication I should be equanimous or it shouldn't impact me so much? So the, the yes, that, there's oh, that. Okay. And the big question I have is that my mind just starts spinning, and when that mm-hmm. happens, I can't sit, I can't meditate. Right. Or if I do, it doesn't feel helpful. Uh-huh. So the spinning mind, and do you notice when the spinning starts? Yeah, it's, it's before I sit down. So it's really like, I had a really hard session the other day, and right. it's just like that entire day, it was just sort of spinning in my mind. Right. Right. And then meditation is so hard. I mean, I did other things. I moved, I danced. Mm-hmm. I did things that helped raise my spirit, and then I was able to sit. So maybe I'm right. answering Okay, so, well, well, that, that's, that's important. So, so we're doing a little inquiry and you're getting some more information. That's, that's fine. 
And what Heather said was that she, she, it was hard to sit there. She'll have a difficult session with people. There's a lot of impact. And then her mind will spin, and so it's hard to sit. And then she said, well, sometimes I'll move or I'll dance and I'll raise my spirit, and then I can sit. And that's very skillful, that maybe you have to move the energy in some way, shape, or form. You know, we don't talk about this a lot, but energetically, so much happens. And you may be actually very sensitive energetically, right? And so then, how to work on the energetic level? One thing that is important is to move the energy. Or the other thing, and you know, you probably can't do this after each session, but is shower, water, bathe, you know, immerse yourself, you know, purify in a certain kind of energetic way. So, and some things, you're nodding your head, so I assume you get that, right? Yeah, that that also helps. Uh, Outdoors, all that kind of stuff. But the spinning, right, the mind spinning, a couple things you might pay attention to, you might be mindful of, what's the feeling? When the mind, like before the mind starts spinning, what's the feeling? And my guess is there's either going to be a certain amount of grief or sorrow that you've imbibed just by the nature of who you're working with. And it's, it's, when I was training to be a therapist, there was one therapist, one, one supervisor who said, you know, if you're going to do this work, you're going to get dirty. There's no way around it. And there's some idea that maybe, you know, if we meditate and we really are present, we'll, we'll be above it in some way. But actually, the opposite might happen. You might be more sensitive to the suffering. You might feel it more fully. So then how you take care of yourself becomes more and more important so that you can do your work. And there are some other practices we could talk about. The one that comes to mind, which I don't know so much, I know a little bit about, but we could find out some more information would be Tonglen practice, which you know a little about, and to really start to work. And in Tonglen, it's a, it's a Tibetan compassion practice. And in the practice, you breathe in the suffering and breathe out compassion. You take it in, you go, and, and really the, the psychological principle is you're actually directly moving towards the suffering. And it's the same principle in mindfulness. The spinning usually means we've not moved directly towards the feeling of the suffering itself. And, and there's a reaction in the, in the whole system. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so, you know, you're going to grieve. The grief is a good thing. It's just that that's part of the purification process. So you want to, you know, the idea of the mindfulness should look like, you know, like this. That's not what it looks like. (laughs) This is a statue. (laughs) This is not a person. This is a very nice statue. I like this statue. But the peopleness, the humanness of mindfulness especially at the level of work you're doing, will be, you'll feel it. Okay.
I'm, I'm thinking about uh, what to do with it for my life, for mm -hmm. work. And uh, I have a job right now that is uh, working with children. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I love them, and that's a great job. But it won't, that's not what I'm going to do forever. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm thinking about going to school, and I'm thinking about studying to become a psychologist, mm -hmm. or something like that, so that I can help people. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. And uh, and it makes me very happy, and, it, and it's uh, a wonderful thing. Uh, but the more I practice, the more dissatisfied I am with the world around here and uh, mm -hmm. the way that it is. Mm -hmm. Let's get down to it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You get into. I get into a place where I need to have faith again. Uh -huh. The thing I love about Buddhism is that I, I don't need as much faith because it's all experience based, and, uh -huh. and I'm actually feeling it. Yeah. And, and you know, it's no longer a being outside of myself. It's uh -huh. God. It's now suddenly a whole experience. Right. So in, in asking myself, what am I going to do? Part of me wants to go to the monastery. Part of me wants to go through the whole labyrinth of the educational system so how is it that I can help people by going in a cave so how can I help by going in a cave well, I don't know you that well <laughs> but um, I'm sure you can find some people who would think that right about all of us <laughs> I would like you much better if you're in a cave <laughs> no. um, um, it's, it's actually a beautiful question you're asking and it's an important question to ask. Um, um, and there's not one simple answer like, oh yeah, going in a cave is good or going in a cave is bad. That's not, it's not the level to respond to your question. The question is, where are you called? What calls you? And then what happens if you pursue it for a while? Maybe you don't go f to the cave and Tibet tomorrow, but maybe you just go on retreat for a week or two or three and start to see what it's like to dip in a little more. Like, don't go to the bottom of the ocean first. Just get in the ocean, swim around, come back to the shore. You know, check it out a little. And then see what hap how the impact is. See if it calls you more. Maybe, oh, you get called more to the depth of the ocean. Or maybe you see 
that even when you think you're getting out of the ocean, the ocean is actually everywhere. And then maybe you think, oh, I don't have to go off in that way. Or maybe you think, I want to go off for a while, but I want to be able to come back. And that's also a possibility. It's not necessarily one or the other. And there is a time to train. Training is a really important part of Buddhist practice, is training the heart and mind. Or we could say retraining the heart and mind. It's really a retraining to, to start to have developed the capacities and the clarity and the understanding that mindfulness and compassion bring. And then, and then whatever you do, you're, you're going to embody that, right? Whether it's in the world or in the cave. And, you know, there's no scientific way to measure the impact of the monastic life on the world. But personally, I think that people who devote themselves to the Dharma have a big impact on the world how, in whatever form they devote themselves. Personally, that's just my own view. Um, uh, yeah, and it's, it's a really, you'll see not everybody's called to be a monastic, even when they think they're called to be a monastic. Like, it, you know, at first one might think that, and then one think, oh no, this is actually not the right place. But you'll know as you dip in, dip in, dip in. But you don't have to do the whole thing tomorrow. You don't have to put on the robes tomorrow and go, you know, off with the nuns. Um, you can't do that anyway. So. <laughs> but, but, but go visit them. Get a little taste. See what you think. See how it feels. Go to Abayagiri if you want, or the monastery in the north of California that's part of the Ajahn Chah lineage and is part of our greater community and see what it's like to spend a few days there or a week there or two weeks or things like that. But, but the decision you're, you're talking about is, um, and, the, and the disenchantment with worldly life, that's not a bad thing. To be enchanted is actually not so helpful. Oddly enough, disenchantment is considered a good thing. It's like being disillusioned. To live in illusion is not a good thing. To be disillusioned, to be re, 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 um, uh, to have our illusions start to dissipate is a good thing. And so, oh yeah, maybe the world doesn't look so good. Well, maybe the world's not so good in a certain way. There's a lot of suffering in the world. And there's a lot of pretense in the world, right? Buy the right thing and you'll be happy. I mean, that's a, that's a predominant thing, theme in our culture. And if, we're to, if, we're, if, if, you wanna if we live based on that belief, there'll be a lot of suffering. So a little bit of disenchantment is not a bad thing. Now, if there's aversion, that's different, right? If there's aversion to the world, that's different than disenchantment. The world is what it is, and the world is the, the medium in which we have to awaken, a little bit for better or for worse. And so to turn away in a, in a in aversive way may not be so skillful. And, and so you want to be aware, you want to start to be mindful of the aversion. But I'm, I'm 
I'm fine with disenchantment. That's not a bad thing. What do you mean by version? Aversion. Aversion. Aversion, like two of the main, um, what are called the hindrances in Buddhism, are desire and aversion. And they're important areas of our uh, experience to be aware of, to be mindful of, because um, desire is usually based on something we perceive as pleasant and we want it. A person, a thing, a place, a, a, a certain kinds of recognition. Well, we think this is good, I want that, I want that, I want that desire. Aversion is we think something's bad. Uh, the world's bad, or this person's bad, or I'm bad, and so we push away from it. Both desire and aversion are forms of clinging, right? They're forms of grasping in Buddhist understanding, and that is the cause of suffering. And that's why I want to make the distinction or ask you to keep looking at the difference between disenchantment and aversion, because if, if, you're, if we're averting from the world in a way, we're, we're doing this. And, and the Dharma asks for openness to what is, because that's, that's where we can f discover reality and how to come into harmony with reality, whether we like the reality or not, right? Reality is not going to be the way we want. And if we can start to find a freedom that's based not on having it be the way we want, or liking the way it is, but on being with it exactly how it is, whether we like it or not. And you don't have to like it, but if you're identified with the aversion, if we're, and that's what I mean by grasping. One way we can understand uh, uh, grasping is it's the identification with aversion. It's the identification with wanting or with desire. It's fine to have desire. It's actually, actually, from another level, it's fine to have aversion. Just don't be identified with it. Just don't, if otherwise, we'll, our life will be run by it. Mindfulness gives us the opportunity to see the, the, the desire, see the aversion, and then we can make choice. And that's a whole other dimension of freedom. So let me know, you know, send me a postcard from the cave or <laughs> let's, see what, let's see what happens. But it's a great adventure because you don't know and you can't know. You can't know. I mean, when I first came to the Dharma, I, uh, I was very taken with it immediately, immediately. And uh, uh, I thought about going off and being a monastic, but I'd, my daughter had been born. Uh, and I was like, I'm not, you know, I, I could see the desire to be a monastic, but I felt more uh, uh, responsibility to being a father and that practice. And so I still did, I still ended up doing a lot of um, uh, retreat practice. I think in the first few years I was doing at least a 10-day retreat every three or four months as a way to, to really pursue where I was drawn. But I wasn't going to go off and, and just leave. You know, that, that became very clear for me. You might not have that responsibility. Maybe you want to go off, and you could. Or go to Asia and just check it out. See what it's like to be in cultures that really support monasticism also, where it's an integral part of the, 
of the culture, which is different here. It's still being rooted, planted here in, in especially Buddhist monastic culture in the West. In the back. Yeah. Yeah. Hey. Hi, William. What's your name? William. Hey, William. Stand up if you would. Thank you. Um, I'm new to uh, meditation. I'm wondering what's the next step. You talk about kind of focusing on your breathing. What's the next thing I can start focusing on? <laughs> <laughs> well, the basic teaching of mindfulness will start with, if, like if you were to take the beginning class or do the beginning day long, or the day long is coming up, generally the instructions will unfold like this. You'll start with the body and the breathing. And then the instruction, first of all, body posture, and then the breath, just like we start here tonight. And then it'll probably open up to other sensations in the body to be aware of those. And so if, if you have a pain in the knee and it's strong, you let the breath go to the background. You start to be mindful of the pain. And what you're learning here is how to be mindful of what's predominant in your experience. You use the breath as a way to concentrate and collect and compose and gather and unify body and mind. And that unification then you bring to other experiences that become predominant, like the pain in the knee. Or maybe you start having a strong feeling. Maybe you start feeling joy and happiness, like for no reason. And it's really strong, and it happens. So you let go of the breath and the breathing. You turn more fully towards the happiness and the joy that's coming. And you start feeling like some kind of ecstasy and just wonderful, and it's great. You, that's, that's what you be mindful of. And then that starts to recede. That starts to calm down the feeling. And then you're aware of your body sitting there breathing again. And then you realize, oh, you're thinking, boy, I just had such a great experience. That was so cool. I want that to happen again. Oh, thinking, thinking. And you start to be aware of the thinking process. Not so much caught up in the content or the narrative, but, oh, thoughts are happening. And thoughts are happening in, in a way we can be aware of. We don't have to be identified with the thought. And so, and so if you get the drift now, what I'm suggesting is whatever the predominant experience becomes the meditation. And, and so what we're encouraging here is, a, is an awareness, is a mindfulness that's not identified with what it's aware of. Now I want to be careful. It's not dissociated from what it's aware of. But it's not simply identified in the usual way we think, oh yeah, the thought, we get lost in the thought, we think it's our whole world. Or if there's a sensation, it's the whole world, or a feeling, it's the whole world. We start to see there's a capacity of mind that knows, the knowing capacity, the mindfulness capacity. And the knowing capacity is not bound by what it knows. And so at a certain point, we also can start to be aware of the knowing itself, the awareness itself. And it keeps going, it keeps, there's a lot to, there's a lot we could play with. And what happens is a certain, it changes our relationship to experience. We don't have to be bound, identified, um, hooked into the various experiences of being a human being. Now, I want to be careful here because we don't want to dissociate from the experiences, right? We want to feel them, stay present in them, allow them, 
appreciate them even. This is what's happening now. But we also see that there's more to us than the experience. And the mindfulness, the awareness, is more than the experience. And then there's a certain kind of freedom we start to see. Oh, we can choose how to respond to our experience. So that's a, that's a certain level of freedom that can come pretty quickly in mindfulness practice. And then there are whole other levels that start to come as the mindfulness gets stronger, gets more clear, and things start, we start to see things are rising in each moment. Not only rising, they're rising and passing in each moment. This can start to happen very quickly. We see a reality is just doing itself, moment by moment, by moment, by moment, by moment. And so what, what in Buddhism we might say is a certain understanding of emptiness, or first of all, impermanence will begin to show itself, that trying to hold on to anything will be suffering, and that there's actually not even a self here in the, in the usual way. We start to see even the one we think is looking, there's, oh, there's nothing solid there. It's also a rising and passing, rising and passing in each moment. Now what I'm describing here called the three characteristics of anicca, dukkha, and anatta, impermanent suffering, and not-self. And these are deeper levels of where mindfulness will take us as we pay attention to experience. And then, and then from there, they become a little bit the springboard for uh, awakening to reveal itself more fully. Does that give you a little picture? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question, because, you know, because, and here's, here's one of the paradoxes, because, you know, mostly when you come on a Sunday night, I'll just give you a little instruction on the body and breathing and say, if you're familiar, open it up, right? But you could just, you could just take the body and the breathing all the way, all the way. The Buddha did. That's, that's what he practiced on the night of his enlightenment, just mindfulness of the breath, all the way to enlightenment. Because everything I said can show up just in the breathing. And so it's just, there's some different stylistic ways to practice. In the, in the general culture of the insight meditation community, of which we're part of, and Spirit Rock, and IMS, and the general community, we practice in a way where we use the breath to center and, and compose ourselves, and then we open it up and just stay with the, the immediate, ex, the predominant experience. And that's, that's a very power. they're both powerful. You could either stay with the breath or you could stay with the predominant experience. They're both very powerful. Okay, let's see. Hi. Uh, Leanne. Um, What's your name? Leanne. 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 Yeah. And um, emptiness. Yeah. And um, my first question is are not self and emptiness pretty much the same thing? So the first question is are not self and emptiness pretty much the same thing? They're variations. Uh, in some sense, we could say the, the words in, in Pali are anatta and shunyata. And shunyata means emptiness, and that means that. It's the emptiness of everything, and anatta is the emptiness of self. 
same emptiness, basically. And, and then um, I'll just say this, that yeah. whenever I have an experience, uh, and I don't know whether it's emptiness or not self, sometimes it's me, sometimes it's the whole world, uh-huh. it makes me feel very safe. So whenever you have an experience that you think of as emptiness... As, as, as when I realize, it's like this direct experience of realizing emptiness, uh-huh. I feel happy and safe in, for my existence. So Leanne feels happy and safe when she has that experience. And then because I, I, I like that experience, uh-huh. how, how can I cultivate that kind of awareness? Uh-huh. No, that's, that's a fine question, a good question. Um, sometimes people in Buddhism think, oh, you shouldn't want anything to happen. And, you know, at a certain level, you actually won't care what happens. But before that, it's fine to want some things to happen. And, you know, it's, you, you wouldn't be here if you didn't want something to happen, right? I mean, you know, I'm just going to go to the Unitarian Church, right? Because it's, you know, I like the concrete or something. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, we want something to happen. Um, uh, and I just want to be careful because people have different experiences of uh, anatta or shunyata, of emptiness of self or not self. And um, as you're saying, whatever you're, I'm not even sure what you're talking about, right? But I'm going to go with you. Your experience of it, you end up feeling safe and it makes you happy. And that is a common experience. Actually, one of the experiences, you know, of, of emptiness is some kind of release. And it's like, oh my God, there's almost nothing to do, right? Or not even nothing. There's no one to do anything. We don't have to do anything. It's all happening on its own. So yeah, it can feel, but it can also feel very threatening. I just want to say that. Sometimes people will have... Um, a feeling of emptiness or experience of not-self, and the self comes back very quickly and gets scared, right? If, if, if you're having an experience of emptiness or not-self and you're afraid, it's what my Tibetan teacher would call one-legged emptiness. You've got one leg in emptiness and one leg in self, and so the self can get scared. I just want people, and it's not a bad thing or a horrible thing. It's actually also very common. But I just, I don't want to just put it out there, oh, emptiness and you'll feel happy and, you know, because that doesn't always happen. So it's nice that that's happening for you. How to make it happen again. Um, if you, if, I'm remembering a, a certain teacher of mine who would say, Sit longer, walk longer, eat less, sleep less. <laughs> this is on retreat. That's what you would say to do. Oh, you want to go deeper? Sit more, walk more, eat less, sleep less. And, you know, things happen. But also, but you could make emptiness uh, uh, an investigation for you since you're drawn there. So start reading about emptiness, start studying emptiness, and start looking, and there's certain practices that you can do in daily life that are emptiness practices. And they're 
can be totally fun to do those kind of practices. Like, for example, one simple practice you can do at any time is you can kind of just feel your body, sense your body, look for the sense of self in your body. Can you find it? No. Now look for your sense of self in your mind. Can you find it? That's okay, it wants to think, but you want to see, is, is it there? Is there a self there, or is that an idea? So, ego wants to believe that it's there. Okay, well, so, but you want to look. Okay. And this is, anybody can do, you can start to scan. Oh, where is the sense of self? And this is the, how the Buddha would teach it. He would deconstruct a little the sense of self. Oh, where is it? Oh, it's this idea of me. Is that actually the self? Or is the history me? Well, it's history. It's not there. It's the thought that I'm, you know, Eugene. Is that me? No, it's a thought that I'm Eugene. You can start to deconstruct. So you can play. And it's fine to play. And then also sit longer, walk longer. This would be really good. You know, go, you know, go on a longer retreat. I don't know, have you done a long retreat? Five days? Yeah, so do 10 days or do a couple weeks or, you know. It's so interesting on retreat because, uh, and you know, you never know what's going to happen. So I don't want to say, oh, it'll happen. But you're setting up the, you're in conditions that are very supportive of insight happening. And one of the insights is not-self. Way in the back. Hi, my name is Michael. Um, sometimes I wonder, sometimes I wonder about uh, desire. Desire? Yeah, I desire is um, good. Yeah? It depends what you're desiring. I mean, some desires are, in Buddhism are considered helpful or skillful. Some are, you know, some are in a, a neutral realm, and some are considered not so skillful or helpful. Like the desire to kill somebody. You know, that's, that's not, not going to be helpful in the long run. Uh-huh. Well, it depends what you mean by take advantage, but enjoy life? Yeah, why not? Sure. And if you practice for a long time, or, or even a while, it depends on the person, uh, what, what it means to appreciate life or take advantage of it, to use your words, might change. Like, what kind of opportunity is this, really? that we're alive? That's a great question. What is it to be alive? And then what is it, what do we value? Because that'll determine what it means to take advantage of this very short time, relatively, a hundred years, you know, that we have to be here. And so that's, that's an important question to ask periodically, periodically, reg, with some regularity, you know, not every minute, but once a year or once a, you know, a few times a year to really reflect, that, okay, where am I at? What do I value? How do I want to spend this what's called precious human birth 
uh, in the Buddhist teachings. And that's very important. And then see what you desire from there. Because the Buddha was very, that's very much how he worked. He desired freedom. And he imagined a freedom beyond what anybody said was possible. And he sought that freedom. He followed his desire all the way to the end. And when I say imagine, I don't mean he made it up. He just intuited that there was a, a capacity of what we could call human maturity that was possible, that was free of suffering. And then he pursued it with his whole heart and soul, his whole being. And so that's, like in Buddhism, that's considered a very skillful desire. Yeah. Okay. Over here. Hi. What's your name? Jennifer. Jennifer. And uh, you were talking about last week about the heart and heart. About the heart. The heart, the way his heart hardened. Oh, the hardened heart. Yes, I did. I talked about that. Yeah. city we're here it's really that's the right question um, you know there's different levels I could answer you on one level is um, um, first of all to well, pay attention to what your mind is telling you is possible like if the mind says oh this is not possible that's not so helpful. Let's see. We don't know how to do it. Not knowing is fine. Not knowing is highly valued in contemplative life. Uh, it's the basis for, for learning, for knowing, for understanding is not knowing. So not knowing how to do it is not a bad thing. right? So don't think that, oh, because you don't know how to do it, it can't be done. It's just, oh, we don't know how yet. I like to say this. My, one of my favorite Dharma books uh, is called um, Freedom from the Known by Krishnamurti. Freedom from the Known. And, and it was such a good title, I never read the book. <laughs> and I was like, why would you want to know any more than that? You know? <laughs> so, so the freedom from the known is a good thing. Okay, so let's start there. So now you have a practice. How do I do this? It's a contemplation now. It's not, oh, Buddhism says you should do this, 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 and this. That's not what Buddhism says. Contemplate reality. Contemplate the fact that the heart has the possibility for being as wide as the world in the midst of the world. I mean, that's an amazing idea just to consider. And it's not in Buddha, just in Buddhism, Christianity, very similar, right? The heart of Christ. 
so our possibility here that there's a, a potentiality that we have as human beings, that our heart has this, what we would say in Buddhism is this boundless potentiality for love and compassion. Now how that functions in the world is a, a tremendous contemplation. And so we don't know. So first, what is generally helpful is to practice, is to start getting grounded in mindfulness and also in some of the heart practices of Buddhism. Tonglin that I described is one. Metta or loving kindness practice. For example, do you know the loving kindness practice? So loving-kindness practice is, is the practice of goodwill. It's related to what I was talking about last week as, you know, as the uh, renouncing uh, ill will is cultivating goodwill. And the one way to cultivate this goodwill or this loving-kindness is to wish people well. And you could go through your day and you could practice this. If you did this for a month, I would love to hear how that impacted you. One month where when you're walking through the street and there are people who are homeless or having suffering, you wish them well, just in your mind and heart. You just wish them well. May you be well. May you be safe. May you be protected and free. May you be, may you be uh, healthy. May you be free from whatever their suffering is you know, addiction or poverty or whatever it might be. And you just go through your day wishing people well. That's a powerful practice to do. And it'll bring up all kinds of things. Could bring up cynicism. Could bring up its opposite, often does at first. Could bring up a sense of nihilism. But also, if you keep going, if you keep going, if you keep going, You'll learn a lot about how the heart can function anywhere, really. And, you know, I don't, don't trust me, but see for yourself. And that's always the Buddha's encouragement is to practice and see for yourself. And it's really for all of us. You know, one of the things that brings people to Buddhism, in addition to the commonsensical values and practices of Buddhism, are the, uh, that, that the, the archetypes of the Buddha and Kuan Yin, who's the, the, the uh, bodhisattva of compassion, they, they ring a bell in us, they strike us on an intuitive level that there's something true there that we know is true. And then part of our practice is to find that truth within ourselves. And, and that's where practice is a support and a guide and, and, a, and a path so that may be realized so that the boundless nature of your heart, your very heart, can, can be realized and manifest in the world. And then who knows what you'll do? I don't know how you'll respond exactly. I don't know if you'll you know, become Mother Teresa or you'll just do your work in a loving way and you'll be kind to people you meet. Okay, does that, yeah. Okay, good. Okay, we're going to stop there. Good, good discussion. Let's sit for a minute or two, and then we'll, we'll offer the merit. And this is one of the heart practices that we end with every week, is, is one of the heart practices in Buddhism.
And we offer from our heart, we offer that the merit or the blessings or the goodness of our practice and our time here together as a community, as friends, as practitioners together, we offer that for the benefit of all, for those people that you're describing that you were homeless or ill or whatever the suffering may be of people here in San Francisco or anywhere in this whole world. We let our hearts uh, generously offer the merit of our practice for the benefit of all. And we wish that our very lives, may our very lives be a benefit to all beings. May our thought and speech and action be a benefit to all. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering in whatever form, of poverty or of hunger or fear, the various ways that people divide not seeing the unity of all the suffering that comes from racism or sexism or homophobia or ageism or economic disparity or based on culture or country or nationality, on ignorance. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings awaken. May we all awaken. May everyone awaken. May our hearts awaken. Become as wide as the world. May all beings be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.